Recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, and host Will Higgins from the Indie Star. Uncle Dan's Story Hour is brought to you by Beer Brewery, with pints, growlers, and conversation at the tap room just west of Benford Boulevard on 65th Street and at your favorite haunt. Thank you, thank you for that heartfelt round. Tonight on Uncle Dan's Story Hour, World War II, what the war was like, not in Europe and not in the Pacific, but here on the home front. In the first half, we'll talk to Alice Ashby Retger, Nancy Hastings Engeldow, and Bob McCallum, who were kids living in Indianapolis and friends of Uncle Dan's. Two of them, Nancy and Alice, both went to school 80. And in the second half, we'll talk to Nancy Connor, Ann Moore, and Kate Asse. Ann and Kate were also kids, but they were Japanese Americans, and they had a different experience. And of course, all evening, we'll be hearing a lot from Uncle Dan Wakefield, who, in 1982, wrote a book about being a kid during World War II. It was called Under the Apple Tree, and I'd like to start by reading a paragraph from that book. It's from page 145. It's a book told from the perspective of an 11-year-old boy named Artie, who I cannot read this book without looking at Uncle Dan and thinking, Artie. In the crisp, clear days of October, America was beautiful, just like in the song. Artie had never been from sea to shining sea, nor had he seen the Purple Mountain's majesty, but he knew they were out there, believed in them, and saw every day with his own eyes the beauty of the gentle hills, the creeks and cornfields, the solid old white frame houses, and the ancient oaks of town. He believed, in fact, that God had shed his grace on this land, that this grace was tangible, visible, in the arc of rainbows over wet fields, the slant of shed sunlight on the sides of old barns, his pride in his country was sustained by the signs of nature and the symbols of men, not only the bright stars and stripes that flew from public buildings and from private porches, but the comforting everyday emblems of home, Bob's Eats, Joe's Premium, Mail Pouch Tobacco. This was what Roy and all the other boys were fighting to save, preserve, and protect along with the people who were lucky enough to live in and of it. And all this was sacred, worthy of any sacrifice, including life itself. For without it, life would be hollow and dumb. That was Dan Wakefield, Under the Apple Tree. Dan was nine years old on December 8th, 1941, when over the radio came this. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. 
I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. So I'd like to ask the guests, start with you, Alice, where were you when you heard that broadcast? I was six years old. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was dark and gloomy. And most Sundays were kind of boring for children because parents took naps and the furnace temperature went down a bit. So I was sitting there reading my uh, little primer about, it was actually about a rainy day with a little puppy who was looking for a home and standing shivering on a porch. About that time, the phone rang. And I never paid much attention to phones ringing, but there was, after my mother hung up, there was some kind of a strange atmosphere. And she came out in the living room she said, the Japanese have just bombed Pearl Harbor. Well, I had no idea where Pearl Harbor was, but I had heard things about Hitler and I had heard things about Japan and I was trying to put it together, but all I heard was bombs. So with the immediacy of a child, I thought they were coming to bomb us. So I ran to my mother and put my head in her lap and said, please don't let them bomb us, mommy. Please don't let them bomb us. Well, she was fearful too because my brother was 20 and she knew that he probably would end up fighting in the war, which he did. So that's my memory. What about you, Bob? Uh, I was upstairs at home and uh, we had a kind of a long distance Zenith radio that Mullet Man and my brother was listening to downstairs and his yell came up and uh, we all ran uh, down to the living room where this radio was and, you know, heard the just what you heard, or close to it, or at least the announcement. And uh, of course, uh, it didn't mean a whole lot to me at that time. Uh, um, we were all upset and anxious about it, but uh, I really didn't realize the full impact, and obviously until later. Dan, what about you? Well, I was at my father's drugstore at 16th and Central, and I heard it, and my first reaction was I, I climbed on a table. You know, they had those, it was a drugstore that had a fountain and little tables and chairs. And I climbed on a table and sang America. Uh, so always being a ham and a show off, uh, I guess that was my reaction. By the way, I wanna say, not only did I go to school with Alice and Nancy School 80, I went to Shortridge with Bob McCallum, and Bob and I were at Camp Chanctanungi, which was one of the formative experiences of our lives. So I want to get that in. So you sang, did you sing all four bars of this? Of, it was My Country Tis of Thee, that's the song, right? That's, that's the one. I don't think I sang it. I, uh, I'll, I'll sing when I remember. Thank you. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not long. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. I think that's enough to nice. give the flavor. <laughs>
Yes, the people in the drugstore clap too, so, you know. <laughs> well, what are some other things? I mean, did you, as you, you're six at the time, and Dan was nine, much older. Could you, I mean, what did it mean to you? Could you even grasp what a war meant? I mean, I mean, you say that you were familiar with the term bomb, but I mean, could you even have any idea, Bob, what was about to happen? As I said, not really. I mean, not till, till later. And you got into the, all the civic activity uh, related to the war effort and uh, at home. But it didn't mean, it didn't have a real big impact initially. I mean, you know, we were coming out of depression, you know, nobody had a whole lot, but you, you know, everybody was happy with what they had and uh, didn't have a lot to worry about. Uh, and in the middle of the country, you really didn't feel like you were on a shore that's gonna be invaded or anything like that. So I don't really think you thought much about any uh, type of uh, contact with the, uh, the war. So really, you got, you got involved in the civic activity uh, related to the war as much as anything else. Yeah, the activities included, uh, you know, everybody collected scrap paper and scrap metal. You went door to door asking women for pots and pans. Uh, you were told that I think something like 7,700 pots and pans made the wing of a pursuit plane. And everybody had a victory garden and we had one in the backyard. I know Alice had one. Uh, I think you raised, we just had carrots and uh, tomatoes and corn. You had more than that. I no, think. I think it was Nancy who uh -oh. had, mother tried, but the whole backyard was full of cinders and things, so it wasn't very productive. <laughs> oh, okay. They did other war efforts. <laughs> okay. But Nancy, you had, your, your folks had a victory garden, didn't they? Yes, they did. Uh, we um, bought the lot next to us, and my dad, I lived on Norwaldo Avenue, you know, in Broderick. Uh, my dad bought the lot next to us and cut it in half, and we had a victory garden back there. Wow. And a chicken coop by the garage. <laughs> wow, that's extra special. <laughs> so were there more chores, because of the war, did you guys have to do chores? I mean, you had responsibilities that you hadn't had earlier? Well, I, I think Bob and I both, it turns out, sold Liberty Magazine door-to-door. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, -door. That was a patriotic magazine. It was, it was like the Colliers and the Post, but it was smaller somehow. But I remember selling those. And... Uh, Five cents a copy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't make much money. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't, wasn't much. But, I think uh, it was scrap, scrap drives, mostly for us kids and, and war stamps. And yeah, I remember oh. a boy in junior high put his electric train in the scrap drive, and we oh, were all wow. we we thought that was really patriotic with a couple or a capital P. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I put my scooter in, but it was so dilapidated that I was happy to get rid of it. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, everybody saved war stamps. They passed those out at schools. One of the now embarrassing things is to think that. Uh, those war stamp books they gave us had, the ones I had anyway, had cartoon pictures of Japanese uh, with fangs and blood dripping from their teeth, and you were supposed to paste the stamp over that. And yeah, it was really propaganda at its, at its highest. Uh, but 
Uh, Bob reminds me that uh, the uh, a big thing was rationing and gas rationing. His dad was a doctor, so you had the A card. Oh, yeah, the black A card. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that helped. <laughs> yeah, that was big. My dad was a pharmacist, so we had a B card, but the mass of people had A cards. So that was a, a matter of uh, status, the whole rationing thing of what you got. Let me ask you this. Did you, you were just little kids. You probably weren't reading the paper beforehand, but did you start paying attention to the news more? Oh, yes. You know, I, yes. I uh -huh. talked to Dan about that. I, it was hard for me to remember what the timeline was between when, when things were happening and when you heard about them. You know, I, the only thing I can really vividly remember is you know, going to uh, uh, every Saturday, we walked about a mile and a half to Ritz Theater in 40, 32nd in Capitol, saw the matinee, and then they always had movie tune, movie tone news on where they had the, you know, video reels of what was happening in the, in the war. Uh, and that was probably the only visual contact we had with what was going on. I mean, you didn't get that much in the papers uh, as far as uh, visual. Uh, contact. Well, and also, you know, you somebody said, well, uh, which was rational, that since we were in the middle of the country, we weren't in fear of being attacked, but I was. I, was, yes. I, uh, I went up on my roof with a pair of binoculars and looked for enemy airplanes. And I, <laughs> I no, but I was serious. It was a, there was a position, it was called Junior Air Raid Warden. And I memorized the outlines of Stukas, Messerschmitts, and Japanese Zeros. I had and I sat up there on 6129 Winthrop looking for them. <laughs> and I just, I assumed that, that the Japanese and the Germans would want to bomb Indianapolis among the first cities because if you knocked out Indianapolis, that would take out the heart of the country, and morale would be lost. That, that was my reasoning, so it was very close. Yeah, and my brother taught me to recognize all the planes too, but I was so blind that the only one I could recognize was a P-38 because it had two fuselages. Yeah. But I do remember <laughs> newspapers because my brother was in the service. He was a glider pilot uh, and went over the Rhine and was wounded. My sister was a cartographer for the Army Map Service, military work. So they were of the age where every, all of their friends were going in the service. So I would watch the newspaper to see who was missing in action and who was killed because many of those persons I knew or at least knew the names. So it, it had a great impact on me. So when somebody, so you knew friends of your, of your older brother who were right. killed then? Right. Well, what happened then? What was the protocol? Would, what would, you, would your mom take a casserole there? Or what was, what was that like? I don't remember that, but it, there was a strange occurrence after the war. One of my brother's classmates was in the, he had a fighter pilot in the Pacific and went off the radar. They never found him. He was an only child. And shortly after the war, his parents appeared at our front door. No invitation, no telling us that they were coming. They just appeared. So mother asked them in and they stayed. 
So she sent me on my bike to the AMP to get something to make lunch. And they just sat there and just talked a little bit, but we never knew why they came. They must have just been wanting to touch base. It was sad, very sad. They were so lonely. That still sticks with me. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And uh, when you, you say your mother sold war bonds downtown? She staffed the bond booths downtown. Yeah. And sometimes I would go down. I remember being in the traction terminal sitting at a table, watching civilization go by, people in zoot suits and soldiers and sailors. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the way, I, I, to me, uh, when you talk about rationing, the taste of the war, of World War II, if you say, what taste of it, it was spam. Oh, I remember <laughs> spam for almost oh, every meal. You know, instead of meat, potatoes, and vegetables, there'd be spam potatoes and vegetables. They also had meatless Tuesdays. Yeah. So that was one way. And I can remember, too, sugar was rationed. Yeah. And one, one day, my mother made a pie, brought it out. But before she brought it out, she put an as a bottle of aspirin on the table because she thought we'd be so shocked that we would have a pie. <laughs> 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 you got two pairs of shoes mm -hmm. a year, and I can remember right right as the war was coming to an end, my mother had had my white summer shoes dyed brown for school. <laughs> but by the oh, end oh, of the school year, large. they were so tight, they were pinching my toes. So she went down to the ration board at 42nd and College to see if she could wangle another pair of shoes. And the person said to her, lady, if it were the president of the United States, no, I couldn't they, give him the coupons didn't, for didn't shoes. So I limped to school. Oh, casually. Well, I remember that um, we had air raid uh, drills. Yeah. drills. Yeah. And we sat in the halls of school lady in Broderville High School and had to sit there and we sang songs while we were sitting there. Yeah, what um, songs? Patriotic oh, songs. Just, yeah, patriotic songs. Columbia, the gem of the ocean, and America the beautiful, and the hall bisected the school, and it was long and dark, and they'd pull the old upright Steinway piano, remember, up from the gym, mm -hmm. bring it in the hall? Yeah. Yeah, and we'd all sit there and sing. Well, you know, one, uh, one thing, that I, it never occurred to me all during the war, and it never occurred to me till much later. Uh, a writer, a friend of mine in New York, who is one of the great writers, Gay Talese, wrote at one point a book called Unto the Sun, so, and he looked back his Italian heritage, and his father had come over from Italy, and never talked to Gay about it or about that, but Gay was my age, and he was making model airplanes, a uh, boy patriot like we were, and he had these model American airplanes hanging from his ceiling of his boy's room, and one day, unaccountably, his father came in and angrily yanked the planes down and threw them on the floor of his room and stamped on them and Gay started crying and ran outside. He didn't understand what happened. And only later, his father told him that his, he'd read in the paper that day that uh, his family's town in Italy 
had been bombed. And he was worried that some of his relatives had been killed. You know, that kind of thing never occurred to me. It just never even entered my mind. And in fact, we had an Italian family living next door to us, and it, it just didn't, didn't come into my mind. But we were inspired by different leaders of other countries. Uh, yes, uh, we, you know, we were curious what, you know, there, you, the World War II uh, produced many powerful leaders, FDR, Patton, uh, MacArthur. Did you have, did you follow these people and, and who were your favorites? I think we followed these um, and, and, you know, I think what we came away with at that time, <laughs> it might be a little different than what you may read today <laughs> about uh, some of the generals and and uh, what they did accomplish or didn't accomplish uh, and what mistakes they may have made. Uh, so it's, it's hard to tell what what you picked up at the time and how that's been flavored <laughs> with what's come, you know, after as far as uh, historically. Well, uh, I, I know uh, I was always inspired by Churchill. I, I, I oh, thought he was a great orator. I loved his talks and one talk in particular uh, that I really loved was where he talked, but it was just after uh, the uh, France was about to fall, and it looked like the Germans were going to invade England, and Churchill gave this speech about how we'll fight them in the villages and towns. I think we have that. We could hear that. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. That inspired me. In fact, I, I love Churchill's speeches so much. This is really uh, embarrassing, but uh, later on, much later, I had a collection of all of Churchill's speeches. And you know, it was a common practice. This is, I'm talking about New York in the 50s after college. And you'd take a girl back to your apartment and play a Chet Baker record or something, try to get her in the mood. I remember I once, and the girl later complained to me about this, how dare I do this. I took her back, I had a couple glasses of wine, and I put on a Churchill speech. <laughs> <laughs> it, it did not have the right effect. It, uh, well, I remember um, when the war was over, we went down to Indianapolis oh. and we danced in the pond around the circle. 
That's oh, right. Yeah. That's right. We had a good time. Yeah. So they, what was that like? Was kissing. Everybody was kissing uh, the, the service people, uh, service guys. And when uh, Nancy told about that, I was a little envious because my brother, as I said, my brother had been wounded. He was in California waiting to go to, after recovering, waiting to go to the Pacific. So my folks were very frightened about that. So the war ended and Nancy went down to the circle. My folks piled in the car and I wanted daddy to hit the, the dot, 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 dash, which you know was V for victory with his horn, which he wouldn't do. But as we went down Meridian, we turned and we went into Trinity Church because my folks were so grateful that my brother wouldn't have to go to the Pacific. Well, for a 10-year-old kid, I wanted to be down in the circle in the fountains. So I threw a little hissy fit and got in big trouble. But after the war, and as I began to grow up, I realized what that had meant to my parents. Their son was safe. About to get back to the sex part, um, <laughs> what um, that was, uh, it, all here during those years, the young men were all gone, and but the, the young women were still here. Rosie that, the Riveter. That must working, yeah. So, yeah. And um, but the dating must have been. I mean, it must have been a very awkward and unnatural time. Well, um, it was. It was a very hard time for four F guys, and uh, in fact, I don't remember even knowing and seeing anything. They must have been hiding out, and there was a terrible song. They're either too young or, or too, too old. old yeah. They're either too gray or too grassy green. What's good is in the army. What's left will never harm me. Uh, that was pretty shocking. One song that everybody remembers from that era that was very popular was, and in fact gave me the idea for the book, was Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree by the Andrews Sisters. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Anyone else but me. Anyone else but me. No, no, no. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Till I come marching home. That was very big. And uh, my cousin Junior, who lived next door, had gone, he had enlisted in the Air Force. He was a tail gunner in a B-17. And my mother, uh, being patriotic, one of the th patriotic things you're supposed to do, if you had a relative at war and he had a girlfriend at home, you're supposed to invite the girl to dinner. And so she invited Junior's girlfriend to dinner and that was a big deal. And we thought how patriotic we were. And then about a year later, my mother came home distraught and said she had found Junior's girlfriend with another date at the Vogue Theater. So that was a, a terrible disillusionment. Yeah, that, that was a, a big riff. I think one of, the other, uh, one of the other great songs that inspired another song that Sophie is gonna play for our before our intermission, uh, it was inspired, in fact, by a Churchill speech, which we have, uh, and I'll tell you how it inspired the song. This was his speech of their finest hour. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth 
last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And that inspired somebody to write here in America a song called uh, My Finest Hour. And our great saxophonist, Sophie Fought, she's going to play that, My Finest Hour, with Sophie Fought. Talking to this segment, I met at the Vonnegut Museum originally. I didn't meet them there, I heard them there. I had gone to the museum, the Vonnegut Museum, to hear uh, a speaker, and I got there early. And I noticed on the stage at the, at the very end of a uh, discussion were some Japanese women, and their discussion sounded very interesting, but it was at the very end. And um, later, I wanted to write about Japanese Americans who had come to Indianapolis, and I thought there was a story there, and there was a story I wrote for Nouveau, but I had to meet these women, so I asked the owner of Book Mamas, who had uh, brought them to the Vonnegut Museum to introduce me. And uh, I met these women and, and wrote an article for Nouveau about the Japanese-American internment camps, which is a kind of dark side of World War II for this country, that two months after the war began, FDR gave an order that all Japanese Americans on the West Coast, all those of Japanese ancestry on the West Coast, were to be placed in internment camps. And I, I wanted that story, and I also later learned, which I will we'll talk about later, how they happened to end up in the Midwest. But first, Kate, Ase, who I've talked to, who has been a nurse in India and all over the world, and who was in one of the Japanese internment camps, when this order came out, as I recall from, t from talking to Kate, she was walking to school one day, and she saw a telephone pole with a big sign that said, all those of Japanese ancestry must report in one week to a particular place. And so 
Kate, can you tell us what that was like? Well, it's hard to remember things that happened 75 years ago. I was 14 at the time. I was a freshman in high school in California. But it just, we just looked at these very large posters and wondered what all of this was going to mean for us. It, it was just, well, a surprise, a shock. I don't know what else to say. We all looked at this and wondered what's going to happen next. And the, the sign, I think, said that you would only, each family would only be able to take what they could carry to these internment camps. And, and you told me that your house was ransacked uh, when people knew you were moving and people took your uh, refrigerator and, and stove and every, every other possession and you could only take what you could carry. Well, they knew that we had to leave and so they would uh, offer very little for anything that they wanted. But anyway, we had to get rid of things in a week's time. So it was done very hastily. Well, Nancy, I know you heard from your mother. Uh, you weren't old enough to be in the camps, but your mother was, and for a, took a long time for her to tell you what that experience was like. My mother and my father were both in their late 20s when Pearl Harbor happened. My mother's family lived in Los Angeles, and my father's family lived in Seattle. They were both American citizens. They were both born in those cities. My mother, it's interesting because the first part of this program, you were talking about how you reacted when you heard about Pearl Harbor. Yeah. My mother told me that she was coming home from church. It was a Sunday. And on the West Coast, it was in the morning. And she was dropping a little girl off after church at her home. And the girl's mother came running out of the house and said, Grace, they bombed Pearl Harbor. And my mother said, oh, what is that? Where is that? And that is how she found out. And the family, of course, was quite frightened um, because they knew that the repercussions for their family would not be good. Well, let me just say that the after after this order went out, FDR ordered the internment of all Japanese Americans, including citizens, to go to internment camps. There were a number of camps on the West Coast for the duration of the war. And then at the end of 1942, he issued another order that Japanese Americans who uh, wished to go to the Midwest or the East Coast could leave the camps if they went to a city which had a committee which was ready to welcome and help Japanese come and settle and get jobs. And I think your mother got a job in Chicago. That's right. Um, my mother's family was taken to the Mansonar internment camp. My dad's family went to Minidoka in Idaho. And each of them gained permission to leave for jobs in the Midwest. They both went to Chicago. 
And at that time during the war, there were, of course, plenty of jobs open because the men had gone to war. Many of the women went into factories. And if you took a job, uh, a service job or a secretarial job, something like that, you could find an opening. And Indianapolis was part of that campaign to yeah. help ref they were essentially refugees yeah they and none of them had ever lived in the midwest before they had nothing here they needed homes they needed jobs they yeah. were refugees from california i mean it was exactly <laughs> yeah exactly and do you remember what that was like when you first heard i was um youngest uh, practically youngest of eight children and so I was listening to whatever they were saying, you know. So it was nice to have some older people around that felt like they were taking care of me, you know. So yeah. I didn't feel afraid because yes. uh, everybody was taking care of everything. So my father was a farmer. My mother had trained to be a nurse. So when this came up, lots of people came to our house and my mother gave them their shots they needed. But we were a little luckier than some people because the farm where my father was working belonged to a very nice, friendly, helpful Caucasian family. Yeah. And so uh, they permitted us to use some of their buildings to store some things in. So that part was safe. Had to, he had to get rid of a lot of the farm equipment, really heavy, fairly new things and pickup truck and yeah. cars. And he didn't, be, he didn't receive any money for it. Yeah. And and you your family went to the camp in Poston, Arizona, yes. is that right? Yes, we, you know, there's something they called um, assembly centers. They were the first camps yeah. that were more close by, because I think mainly because the permanent camps weren't finished yet. Yeah. So we were moved into the Salinas. Well, it was rodeo grounds. And so some of the people were living in horse stalls. And then there were barracks that were very quickly built. And yeah. so that was really the most traumatic for us because it was so different from home. Yeah. You know, and they haven't talked much about those camps. But really, I think for most of us, the hardest thing was the first camp to move into. Poston was difficult because the weather was so different. Yeah. You know, it was so hot and so dry, and so there was a lot to get used to there. Yeah. I think it was the end of 43. You know, we went in in 42. Maybe the end of 43, they said that some people could leave. But my two sisters were helped by some Quaker workers who were around the camp and they went to Philadelphia mm -hmm. to see what kind of jobs they could find and see if it might be um, 
good place for our family to move into. And, um, but she found that the people were very friendly and helpful and people out there didn't know anything yeah. about us being in the camp. And so, well, let me ask you: When you moved to these, to the away from the camps, to Phil, to Philadelphia, and to other cities, did your family de-emphasize its Japaneseness at all? Did you change or, or, or tamper down any of your customs or the way you lived in order to be more, you know, not so conspicuous? Was there any talk like that? My parents didn't talk about that sort of thing. The government encouraged people, Jap the Japanese Americans who tr resettled in cities around the country to keep a low profile, not yeah. to congregate together and right. to try to blend in, which as yeah. you might well imagine was not real possible, yeah. but, um, yeah. but that was the advice of the government. Well, Kate, you had told me too about what it was like at Poston they you had to knit during the summer and it was very hot and that they i remember you said they had a library with almost all books by zane gray <laughs> so, uh, and yeah the uh, international red cross it yeah. donated them i guess yeah, yeah. but the, there's a another wrinkle in my story is that i think it was Let's see, we were evacuated from California in May of 42. Shortly thereafter, they uh, came, the FBI came and uh, took my father away. And he was incarcerated in a, I think he said it was a jail. The FBI and the government decided that anybody that had had any uh, education beyond high school or who uh, was a successful uh, farmer or successful shipper, whatever, would be picked up. You know, the leaders in the community would be picked up. My father ha was a uh, teacher of the Japanese language. Yes. He spent, oh, I think a year and a half away from us. Yeah. And in the meantime, the government moved us from uh, Arizona to Texas to a family re reunification camp, I guess yeah. they called it. Yeah. And so we were finally reunited with him uh, in Texas, and that was um, January of 44. Yeah, but you were... You never knew what was going to happen or what, no. where your family was going to be put, where people would be, where you'd be reunited, reunited or anything else. I, I remember also, uh, Nancy, you told about how your mother had told you that you could only, people could only take what they could carry to the camp. So your father took an ironing board can you tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, my family loved to tell that story. Um, there, you could only take what you could carry. Most people carried a suitcase. My grandfather took an ironing board, and he hid a saw, a hammer, 
and some screwdrivers, some nails, some tools, and he took a big piece of canvas and wrapped them all up inside of the ironing board and snuck them into Manzanar. And throughout the first part of the war, our family was the only one that had tools because you weren't allowed to have tools and people would come and borrow them. And because you had to make your own furniture. When they got there, there were no beds or no chairs or tables. Yeah. You had to, they had to make their furniture. They had to take um, mattress covers and stuff them with straw to make their mattresses. Yeah. Um, but I always thought that was a funny story because if I had, could only take what I could carry to going someplace, I didn't know how long or where or what the conditions would be. The last thing I would take is an <laughs> iron board. Yeah, yeah. Well, so w were you all aware of the propaganda that the government was putting out about Japanese people through posters and advertisements and magazines and this sort of thing, demonizing, you know, the people that we were fighting against? We didn't, we didn't have newspapers from the outside. We had an internal newspaper in Poston which was put together by the people who had been incarcerated there. And the camps were surrounded by barbed wire, weren't they? Some places were. Yeah. Poston was not, because yeah. they thought that uh, it was in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And, uh, there was nowhere to go, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I think part of it was, and then they didn't finish. So there's a big part of the desert you could go into because they never finished. They, they uh, I think, paid some of the Native Americans to come over and work on it some, yeah. but they never completed it, I think. Yeah. But well, can I ask you, yeah. Uncle Dan, did the, the um, propaganda, did it work on you? Did you have a bitterness towards the Japanese people as a nine-year-old child? Oh, are no, with me? Uh, yeah, oh. with you, yeah. Yeah, I, I believed all those, and there were war movies and all the cartoons, Terry and the Pirates, they were fighting the Japanese. So it was just the same as the Germans, you know, that they were all the bad guys that we were fighting. And uh, I think probably most kids... And my friend Gay Talese felt like the Italians were the bad guys, not really realizing they were his own family. So it was uh, that whole the propaganda thing during any war is very strange. And now we're hearing another kind of propaganda, and I know that many Japanese Americans have been upset about the, the thoughts or the proposal that there be internment camps for Muslims in this country. And I know uh, one Representative Chu was one of the, the Japanese American Congresswomen who spoke out. But have your groups uh, talked about that? Yes, absolutely. This is something that's of great concern to Japanese Americans is could this happen again? Could it happen to somebody else? Could it happen again to us, to Asians, to other people? The commission that investigated the internment 40 years later concluded that there were three causes of the internment. 
there was war hysteria, there was racial prejudice, and there was a failure of political leadership. And if you think about those three ingredients, about prejudice towards people of another race, about fear and what happens in times of war when you become suspicious of anybody around you that may be part of that group or may look like part of that group. Yeah. And if you consider that the political leadership has to be there to say, no, we don't do this to our own citizens. Yeah. And yeah. think about today. Yeah. Some Syrian refugees a year ago were trying to get into Indiana to flee their, you know, war-torn country, and we said no. What, did you have an opinion on that when that was going on? Well, uh, the organization that all three of us belong to, which is the JACL, stood up and said, that's not to be done. We don't want to repeat what happened to us. The well, Irvington Presbyterian Church, though, has been helping a Syrian family in Indianapolis since then. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> the the only uh, the the, mo the brightest part of Indianapolis' role that I was very happy to see Nancy Connor wrote about in her paper at IUPUI with a master's thesis on the repatriation that Japanese Americans were taken when they, they were volunteered, when they were able to, to go to different cities and get homes, get work, and get places to live. And those cities had to have committees that were willing to help them get settled. And Nancy's uh, wrote about how in Indianapolis, even though the American Legion was against there being such a committee to help the Japanese Americans come, the chamber, head of the Chamber of Commerce was in favor of it. There was a man who was the personnel manager of the big LS Airs department store who was in favor of it. There were other prominent citizens who, in spite of the Legion and the Teamsters Union, were against it, but en enough prominent citizens were for it that they made uh, Indianapolis was one of the cities that volunteered to do that. And Nancy ended her papers talking about this and saying, when the call came, there were people in Indianapolis who were prepared to answer. And I thought that was uh, a very good, good mark for us to have been part of such a thing. And I think we'll, you will be part of uh, any effort to try to discriminate against Muslims during this period. Yeah, a lot of this was organized by the churches and here in Indianapolis, particularly the Disciples of Christ because they had their national headquarters here. The other place where you saw support for those who were trying to get out of the camps was from colleges. I, I know some of this is happening on our college campuses today where they're trying to protect their students. And there were many, many churches, including, of course, the Quakers. Earlham College was part of this effort back in World War II for the Japanese-Americans and many other denominations. Well, thank you all very much for coming. 
I, I want to say also that these women have really had done distinguished work. Uh, Nancy was just retired from the Indiana Humanities Council that she served for many years. Kate has been a nurse in India and many parts of the world. Anne has been a museum curator as well as a librarian, and they've all made real contributions and we're, we're very lucky to have them and have them here tonight. We do have a little bit of time for some questions if people want to come up here and say something in the microphone. You, you can talk about your experience in World War II or you can ask us things, you can ask these women things about their experience, whatever you want to say. Who made out on real estate? What happened to the real estate that you folks may have owned and had to leave? I think that in California, most of the people had lost their property. Yes, and didn't they also lose their savings, their bank Yes, for so I never understood that, but they were not able to access their bank accounts. Yes. When they left their homes, they left everything. And all they got back was in 1980s, $20,000. So uh, I don't know whether the government made out or who did make out. I think there was probably a certain amount of panic. If you only had a week to figure out what to do with everything you owned, some people probably sold for pennies on the dollar. I think my grandparents found renters for their home. They owned a mom and pop store and a house behind it. And it seems to me they told me that they rented it out to somebody who then sublet it to somebody else who stole everything in the house. They owned two cars. They had to sell them. My mother took some of her things to her Caucasian friends who kept them for her. She got that back. So there's yeah. probably a variation. And, and am I not right that Japanese Americans were not allowed to be citizens unless they were born here until 1951? 52, yeah. 52, 1952, yeah. I think there's another question. Thank you for presenting your stories tonight. We obviously have no idea, no concept of what it was like to live in a camp. Could each of you give us an idea, sort of what a typical day was like living in the camp, please? Well, we had to line up to go to the mess hall for our meals. And when there are 300 people in a block and you have to stand in the sun and line up and wait until you, the mess hall opens. I think a lot of it had to do with the um, the climate in these places. They were all pretty much in the desert or out in parts of where the weather was very severe. My family was from Los Angeles, so they weren't used to anything like severe weather. My mother talked a lot about dust storms. There would be dust storms and they would try to clean up their little cubicles and immediately the dust would come back and get through the walls and it would be all over everything. That was, I think, the thing that bothered her the most. 
I, can I just add one more thing? Um, Manzanar and Minidoka, where my parents were, are now both National Park Service historic sites, and they have wonderful websites which explain a lot about what it was like there. We should also say that we're here in the Red Key, and the original founder of the Red Key, Russ Settle, was a co-pilot on a B-17 and was shot down over Germany and was a prisoner of war uh, during the war. And that's why there are all those planes up there on the ceiling. So right here we have a, a reminder of, of World War II from somebody who was a participant. We all remember Kurt Vonnegut, who was also a prisoner of war and who was in Dresden during the firebombing of Dresden and who wrote his great novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, about it. So there are many Indianapolis people who had a, a very uh, deep part in the war, and, and it's still all around us right, right here. I think now we could have Sophie play what we want to be our regular sign-off song, which is another World War II song, which is I'll Be Seeing You. And I remember as a kid really loving this song and thinking about people who were away. So Sophie will play I'll Be Seeing You. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was recorded live in the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana. For tickets and information on future Story Hour events, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by the amazing Beer Brewery and faithful listeners like you. Special thanks to the Neon Sign for guiding the way to the Red Key. Writer, Uncle Dan Wakefield. Host, Will Higgins from the Indy Star. Creative consultant and senior lecturer at IU and writer. Very special guests, Alice Ashby Rutger, Nancy Hastings Ingledow, Dr. Bob McCollum, Nancy Connor, and more, and Kate Assi. Producers Pat Chastain and Michael Therwechter. And thanks to owners Jim, Dolly, and Leslie Settle, Violet Walker, and the fantastic staff at the Red Key Tavern. Our amazing recording engineer is Steve McQuarrie. Our graphic artist is the very talented Sarah Bushman. The WFYI program director is the wonderful Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was created by Dan Wakefield and Michael Therwechter. <laughs>